I want you to open up to Ezra, chapter 3. We're going to kick it off somewhere around there. That's the plan anyway, hopefully. Ezra, chapter 3. And uh, I don't know, anybody else had a weird week? No? Just me? Is weird week floating around out there? Not for anybody else? I know Joni had a weird week. I'm having a weird week. You having a weird week too? It's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of, uh, it's kind of cool because, I mean, even in the midst of all the crazy, weird things that that go on, just see the fingerprints of God in the circumstances and in how things are kind of coming together, and some of them are pleasant and some of them not so pleasant, but. Still seeing God's hand. So we've been going through the Old Testament and we just finished first and second chronicles, which were written probably by Ezra the scribe. And now we, we find ourselves in the book of Ezra. Now, as we're looking at it, you guys are kind of following a history and Ezra is not in the book of Ezra yet. <laughs> Ezra don't come to the book of Ezra till chapter seven. But, but the history of Ezra is being laid out and he's saying, look, just like I laid out the history, First and Second Chronicles, now I'm giving you the history of when the children of Israel come back. You know, you have uh, some stories that Jesus told in Luke chapter 15 about God's desire for the lost. And, and, and there's three of them together. And there's, there's a story there about a woman who loses her coin. You guys remember that one? And she turns her whole house upside down until she finds it. Or uh, a shepherd who loses a sheep. Who leaves the 99 and goes and finds the one. And then you have, compared to those two stories, a father who loses his son. The difference in that story is the dad never leaves his porch. Dad stays on the porch and watches for his son to come home. When he sees his son coming home, he goes and gets him. And I think one of the things that it, that is illustrated in that story, in the first two instances, is God's desire to see, to, to, to return that which is lost so that it's where it belongs again. But in the third story, he tells us, I think, how that works out practically in real life. Because as bad as we want someone to come back until... They're actually ready to turn away from where they've gone. They're not coming home. It don't matter how much you pester or how much you chase them. Even though you long for their presence. And the same is true for God's people. We see it illustrated in the children of Israel. They were called of God to, to, to provide an example uh, historically of, of how God worked among the people. They give us a, a historical glimpse of what faith is. Because God's people had to put faith in God's system of sacrifice that when I offer this lamb, God's going to forgive my sins. And all the while, they understood that that lamb didn't really pay for anything. So the, the evidence of their faith, their belief in God, was that they came... Every morning and every evening to receive forgiveness of sins. And and what we see is in the reality of their existence with God, you have times where that was going good. 
in times where they forgot about that whole process, right? So they forgot so much that they end up in captivity. And in captivity, they're in Babylon, they're in the place, the city, there's only, guys, there's two cities thrown out on the pages of Scripture that come up over and over and over again, not just as real places, but as prophetic instances of, of a, a prophetic concept, and that is Babylon and Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the city where God put His name. And Babylon is the city in rebellion against God. So God's people rebelled against God to the point where the Lord let them go in their rebellion to Babylon. And they've been there 70 years. Now, hundreds of thousands of them are there. And Cyrus comes on the scene who Isaiah had prophesied 150 years before he was born or named. And, and this is why I love God's prophets. The, the world's prophets cannot hold a candle to God's prophets. Isaiah named Cyrus by name 150 years before he was born. He didn't say a guy is going to be born and they're going to name him with something that starts with a C. He said, in a, he said Cyrus is going to set the people free. And Cyrus didn't even exist yet. Yeah, not even in captivity. So then when Cyrus comes on the scene, man, <laughs> there's some cool uh, uh, rabbinical concepts about Cyrus coming on the scene and Daniel walking up to Cyrus. And remember, Cyrus was a Mede. And, and Daniel, who conquered Israel, was Babylon, right? So you, that's Nebuchadnezzar. So... Nebuchadnezzar's there, but Nebuchadnezzar gets old and dies, and, and then Nabonidus takes over, but he's not really, doesn't dig Babylon, so he goes somewhere else. So he lives, he leaves Nebuchadnezzar's kid, uh, uh, Belteshazzar, is that right? Or Belshazzar? I get him and Daniel mixed up, they're Babylonian names, but it really doesn't matter. Belteshazzar? Belshazzar. So Belshazzar's there. He's the guy who throws the party with all of the implements of the temple. You remember they're drinking, they're having a big old drunken party, and all of a sudden a hand appears and writes on the wall, Many, many, tekel you farsen. You've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Today, your kingdom is stripped from your hands. Well, the Medo-Persian army was outside, but Babylon didn't think they could ever be conquered. Well, the Medo-Persians did exactly what the Bible said they would do. The Bible said, Cyrus is going to change the direction of the water. He's going to dry up the river. And he dried up the river, and so they walked under the gate. There was a gate, a water gate in the Babylon that was filled with the river. He changed, he, he turned the direction of the river and just walked in. And nobody ever fought, nobody did nothing, they just came in it, the, the history tells us that when Babylon was conquered by the Medes and the Persians, they didn't know it for three days. It's business as usual, right? I mean, as long as I can still go to my job and do my thing, it's all good. So Cyrus comes to power. Now, one of the wise men, Belshazzar, remember when he saw the handwriting on the wall, who did he call for? Daniel, right? So, now this is, this is uh, Jewish legend. It's not in the Bible. Jewish legend says that when Cyrus took over ruling, Daniel came to Cyrus and showed him the scroll of Isaiah. And said, look, he called you by name, King Cyrus. And God said, you're going to let his people go. And so Cyrus let his people go. 
When they went back, I'm just going to give you rough numbers, 50,000 go back. Oh, still that way today. There were hundreds of thousands of Jews. Perhaps, maybe they even uh, numbered in the millions there in Babylon. But when the offer came to go back to the land of Jerusalem, God's land, leaving the place of rebellion and going to the place that centered on God, only 50,000 went. It does make sense. Because it's still that way today. The Holy Spirit doesn't come and drag you by the ears and make you surrender to God. He just asks, right? Whosoever can come. We're going, we're going back. You coming? So 50,000 went. That's the first, um, I don't know what you call it. You could call it a deportation from Babylon or importation to Jerusalem. But, but there, that's the first group that comes. In 60 years, we're going to cover 21 years tonight, hopefully, if I don't talk too long. 21 years tonight as they build the temple. And then 60 years after that is done, the temple's been built, Ezra's going to come. You see, what we see in, 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 in Ezra, Ezra's in two parts. One, the rebuilding of the temple and the establishing again of a center, central place for God's people to worship Him. The establishment of, of the sacrificial system, all that stuff comes back in the first half. In the second half, first half God deals with the structure building the temple. The second half God deals with the people. Reviving the people. First, he, 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 he builds the foundation, if you will, and the concept of temple worship. And then he revives the people in the second half of the book. So Ezra, when Ezra comes in chapter 7, the second opportunity for the children of Israel to come back to the land. The temple's back! Man, we can go back and worship. We can go back and, and begin to develop a relationship with God. It's all there. Somebody's done it all. The call goes out. 1,500 go the second time. Still that way. So when you come to Matthew chapter 7, and Jesus says, Many will say in that day, Lord, Lord. And I will say, depart from me. I never knew you, workers of iniquity. I didn't know you. I don't know who you are. If you went to Babylon after all that took place, and you went to talk to the Jews, and you said, who are you people? They said, we're Jews. But Paul says in Romans, not everyone who says they are of Israel are of Israel. Paul says in Romans that, that God can raise up rocks to be children of Abraham. He said, it's those who follow me, they're mine. Isn't that the same thing Jesus said to his disciples? Come follow me. Man, the illustrations throughout the Old Testament show us that that plan and purpose of God as we, as we work our way through. So as we look at what's going on in the building, the rebuilding of the temple tonight, hopefully I'm going to cover all that. 21 years. They worked to rebuild the temple. Long time. It's a big project, right? So as they're working on that time, God is, is teaching them and showing them His ability to, 
to not only help them redeem. Last time we looked at Ezra, the first two chapters, we see a proclamation of the king saying, go, that's Cyrus. And then we see the people reclaiming their heritage, their nationality, their, their genealogy, their relationship with God. And you understand, our relationship with God is, we're not born, it's not hereditary. <laughs> It's not hereditary. It's, it's, it's a reality of how we, how we behave, how we perform, the things that we do. So then when we come to chapter 3, tonight as we open up and begin in chapter 3, what we see is now the people are going to begin to reclaim their theology. They reclaim their genealogy or their nationality. Now, these are people who are choosing to follow God. Are you with me? But now there, there's a way God wants us to follow Him, isn't there? The Bible says in, in, in the Gospel of John, there's one way. How many ways is there to, to, to follow God? One. Jesus, He said, I am what? The truth and the life. No. How many men? No one comes to the Father. How many does that mean? None, right? Nobody gets to, to God the Father except through Jesus Christ His Son, right? That's it. One way. So when God's people are saying, we're going to follow God, how many ways in the Old Testament was there for them to follow God? There was one. And it required a building. And the building that they build, this is so cool. And if you guys missed the studies when we went through Leviticus and and Numbers and Deuteronomy, we talked about the building of the tabernacle and the temple. All of those, every part of the temple and the tabernacle, the furniture, the things that they did, every one of them point to Jesus Christ. That's why it was so important, because the temple was a picture of Christ. And the main focal point of the temple is the Holy of Holies, into which was placed the Ark of the Covenant, right? Everybody remembers that? The the box that held all the failures of mankind. And over that box was put the hilasterion, or or what, what you would call in English, the propitiation. The propitiation covered the failures of men. And upon the propitiation, they would put the blood of the sacrifice. The Bible tells us that Jesus is our propitiation, right? He's the covering over the failures of mankind. Everywhere throughout the temple points to Jesus, points to Jesus. One way. There's only one way. The Old Testament illustrates the New Testament, shows us the reality. You get what I'm saying? So first he tells the story, shows them in in uh, illustrations, and then he shows them the reality. Here's what you've been practicing all along. What did John say when he pointed to Jesus Christ? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you study the Old Testament, the Lamb of God is not a weird concept, right? You go, oh yeah, that's the sacrifice. He's the sacrifice. If you read Genesis chapter 22 and you see Abraham offering his son, and then the Bible says, Abraham named the name of that place Yahweh Yideh. And he said, in this mountain, one day, in this mountain, it will be provided. Yahweh Yideh means God will provide himself the sacrifice. God will become the sacrifice. So when John pointed to Jesus and said, behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God means the Lamb which came from God. God sent God's Son, God Himself, the Lamb, to take away our sins. We understand the Old Testament illustrates all of that stuff for us. 
So in Ezra, as they're building, they're coming back to their theology. The concept of the sacrifice. The concept of we need a place to worship. This is, this is where we come to God. This is where we meet God and He makes us okay. That's why it was so vital for them. You get it? To, to build that, that building. Because you remember, way back, think way back, Adam and Eve were thrown out of the garden. But somehow they knew how to make sacrifices, right? Didn't they? Because the next story after Adam and Eve is who? Their two kids. Do you remember their two kids? Cain and Abel. What Cain do? Killed Abel. Why did he kill him? Because of what? They were both bringing sacrifices to God, right? And Abel's was accepted. God said, good sacrifice. And Cain's wasn't. They were talking to God, weren't they? The Bible tells us when God put Adam and Eve out of the garden, He set the cherubim to guard the entrance to the garden. Remember, the top of the Ark of the Covenant had what on top? Two cherubim, right? And God told His people when they built the Ark, He said, I, God, will meet you between the cherubim. So way back in... Adam and Eve, way back with Cain and Abel, when they were learning the sacrifices. Who taught them? God did. Where? At the entrance to the Garden of Eden between the cherubim. It all fits together. It's not any of it there by accident. Not any of it there. Oops, I don't know what that has to do with anything. No, it's all points to the truth. So the sacrifice is what makes me right with God. In the Old Testament, it was the sacrifice that made me right with God. What is it today? It's the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that makes me right with God. It's the only thing. That's it. Him. He makes me right. So it's so vital for them to build this so that they can restore that. Right? 70 years, they haven't had it. That's a long time, right? To go without worshiping God, to go without... Seeking his face, just praying toward Jerusalem, thinking, oh Lord, I wish I could make a sacrifice. I wish I could claim it. I wish I could lay hold of it. So that's what happens. It says in chapter 3, verse 1, When the seventh month had come and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together like one man to Jerusalem. Unity is always going to be the key to seeing God work. Acts chapter 2, what happened before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost and the church being born? The disciples were gathered in the upper room, and how were they gathered? In one accord. In one accord. That doesn't mean one Honda. It means... I know, I could see by the back of your head what you were thinking. So, when the Bible says they were in one accord, they were in unity, they were unified together, that's exactly what Jesus said should mark His church doesn't mean there's not supposed to be denominations. It doesn't mean that there's not going to be differences in worship. It means that we should be able to get beyond all those things and hold the essentials as essential. And the essentials are Jesus Christ and His sacrifice. And then we should love each other past the problems we see in each other. Anybody in here got problems that kind of leak out on other people sometimes? Okay, so so uh, we've been talking on Sundays about 
I don't know if we're going to make it through 21 years right now. <laughs> Come on, John, believe in it. So, 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 but I got to say this. I got to say, we've been talking about people's brokenness and the, and the, and the fact that Romans teaches us that we're all broken and that in that brokenness, we are mended in a relationship with Jesus Christ who makes us whole because of that relationship. So we're made whole and the brokenness is, if, if we recognize, if I recognize, if you recognize, if we recognize our own brokenness, then I'm incapable of looking at somebody else in a judgmental attitude and saying, you know, they're really screwed up. Because I should, yeah, that's right. I should be able to look at them with compassion. And that compassion, all throughout the scripture, right? When you look at a brother who stumbled and fall, how, how's the Bible say to deal with them? With grace and mercy, considering yourself, lest you also fall. Which means we're all in the same boat, Right? And that compassion and that attitude, that compassion means I want to help you. I, I, I don't want to uh, uh, just overlook the issue, but I want to help you overcome the issue. And so it becomes an attitude of love that binds me together. And what binds us together puts us together in unity. And what puts us together in unity enables the Holy Spirit to empower. And when the Holy Spirit empowers, whew, everything changes. That's the unity that Jesus Christ called us to. The unfortunate reality is we tend not to want to walk in that. Makes me feel good when I look at somebody more screwed up than me and I think, well, I'm better than that guy. <laughs> right? And it can become a it can become a trap. You know? Yeah. It can become that the the the, the crutch. Something I hold on to, that I cling to, that I say, hey, this is my, this is my thing. God wants us to be in unity. The first thing that happened to these guys, when they build the foundation of revival for the nation, the first thing, they're unified. They're together. They're not, just because they're together doesn't mean there wasn't screw-ups in the midst. It doesn't mean that they didn't have addicts. It doesn't mean that they didn't have people who lied. It doesn't mean that they didn't have people who let people down. What it means is everyone looked beyond that compassionately to one another's failures, looking forward to clinging to the sacrifice to cover their brokenness. So they're unified. They're in unity. One man. And Jeshua, that's the high priest. Yeshua. Literally, this guy's name is Jesus. That's Jesus. Yeshua. Joshua, same thing. Joshua is Jesus, a Hebrew name. So, Yeshua, the high priest, the son of Josadak, uh, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel. Now, Zerubbabel is a child of the king. He's from the line of David, from Jehoiakim's line. So, he's royal. So, you got a guy there to lead uh, 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 civilly. Is that the right word? You guys get what I'm not civil like nice, but civil like government. And then you have a guy there to lead religiously uh, uh, through the the religious system, right? Pointing to Christ. So both of these guys gathered together in one accord, uh, and they arose to build the altar of the God of Israel and to offer burnt offerings on it, as was written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Way back in Deuteronomy chapter 12, the first thing they did before they ever built the temple. They built the altar. How come? 
Because the whole point of the temple was to have a place for sacrifice, to sprinkle the blood. But before you worried about sprinkling the blood, you needed a place of sacrifice. Everything was around the sacrifice. The, 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 the altar pointed to the cross. The altar was not made of any hewn stone. You guys know what that means? That means they just picked natural rocks. Whatever shape the rock was in, they just found them that they could fit them together. They didn't put a chisel on them and make them square. Because they don't want you to focus on the altar. So the altar just is a bunch of pile of rocks. What is the focus? The sacrifice, the sacrifice, the sacrifice. Which is pointing to God. Keeping the focus where the focus needs to be. So they're going to build this altar, man. They're gathered together, one accord. It says, though the fear, though fear had come upon them because of the people in the countries around them. So I don't want you to understand. When these guys came back to the land, they're surrounded every way by people who hate them. Now, not a lot has changed today, right? Israel's still that way. But this time, these guys all come back and everybody wants to kill them and everybody wants, and they're afraid. But their love and desire to honor God overcomes their fear of all the other stuff around them. That's how it's supposed to be. We love God more than we're afraid of something. That's how we become overcomers. We're overcomers when, when we love God that much. They, their, their fear was on them, but they still wanted to come. So they set the altar on its base, and they offered a burnt offering on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening burnt offerings. So from the moment they built that altar, guess what they started doing? Offerings every morning, every night. Every morning, every night. What does that tell me? That tells me I need forgiveness for my sins and God's covering in my life every morning and every night. And I'm not ever not going to need it. Every day, every morning, and every evening. Because it doesn't take me very long. From the time my alarm goes off, I begin sinning. And when I finally lay my head down on the bed, it's about the time it's going to stop. Now that doesn't mean it excuses me. It means that i got to rely on the covering of, of Jesus Christ every morning and every evening. And so they were, it was so important to them to do that. It's the first thing they do, they start offering. Then it says, then they kept the feast of the tabernacles as it is written. That's, that's roughly 15 days later. The seventh month on the 15th day. The feast of the tabernacles as it is written and offered daily burnt offerings in the number required by ordinance for each day. So they're starting to get on track with worship. See, see, worship is not just a, a song we sing or an attitude we have. It's a life we live. So we either live a life of worship or we don't live a life of worship. To follow Jesus Christ is to live a life of worship. And, and so that we're constantly in that place. So they kept the feast. And afterwards it says they offered the regular burnt offering and those for the new moons and for the appointed feast. That's the Sabbaths and the, and the seven feasts that God had appointed in the Old Testament. And the, uh, to the Lord or the feast of the Lord <clears throat> that were consecrated and those of everyone willing, willingly offered a free will offering to the Lord. 
So that free will offering is the only offering that just the average Joe can give. That means the guy who wasn't a Jew, he could always give a free will. The other ones were for Jews. But this was free will offering, sacrifice was, was open to everyone. So from the first day of the seventh month, they began to burn, uh, to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. So the temple's not up yet. First thing they do, get the sacrifices going. Which all, every one of those sacrifices point to Christ. Every one of those sacrifices point to a man or woman living their life by faith, trusting in God's word who said, I will cover over your sins if you offer the sacrifice. I'll cover over. Looking forward to Messiah, even as we look back to the offering of Messiah. So, they also gave money. To the masons and the carpenters, and food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre, to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the Sea of Joppa, according to the permission which they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second month of the second year of their coming, so now we just, a year's gone, just like that. Isn't that about how fast they go? Um Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Yeshua, the son of Josadak, and the rest of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all those who had come out of captivity to Jerusalem began to work and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and above to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Uh, by the way, that is a necessary component within any healthy body today. People from 20 years old and up. To do the work. To do the work. To be able to do the work of the house of the Lord. Then Yeshua, with his sons and brothers, Cadmiel with his sons, and the sons of Judah, rose as one to oversee those working on the house of God. The sons of Hanadad, with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. Now when the builders laid the foundation of the temple. Now that foundation, let me see. Foundation of the temple. So the temple mount is this big top of a mountain made flat. And the foundations of the temple is that. The part which they make flat. It's not like you might be picturing the first course of of block laid and say that's the foundation. But the foundation they're talking about is what they're going to put that block on. The flat part. So basically what they're doing is making it all flat. I'm sure it was a big dump. Big, big, big dump. And so there, some of the stones that they lay in there are 500 tons. It's big stones, right? So it's a big job. So they're, they're laying these foundation stones. And it says they lay them, uh, the foundation of the temple. And the priests stood in their apparel with the trumpets and the Levites and the sons of Asaph and the cymbals to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of, of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for He is good and His mercy endures forever. So while they're making that flat and they're setting those stones for the part upon which they're going to place the temple, they begin to praise. Manur is, just so you know, 19 more years of work. Can you praise God when there's still 19 more years of work to go? They, they praise Him when they can offer the sacrifices. They praise Him at the beginning. There's a long ways to go. 
But they don't stop praising him. Why? Listen, this is so important, guys. They praise him because the journey has begun. And the journey is continuing. They don't praise him because they've come to the end yet. They praise him because we've started. How many times have you needed a fresh start? A new beginning? How many times have you needed to remind yourself, or I've needed to remind myself, I'm not yet what I will be, but thank God I'm not what I was. I'm not perfected, but I press on. So, so we see in Ezra this desire of God's people to praise God in every, in every uh, um, part of the journey of walking with God, a relationship with God. Not just praise Him for, oh, I finally became a good person, but to praise Him for when I started and that I'm still on the road and, oops, I fell off the road, but I praise you, God, I'm back on the road. You get what I'm saying? So there's a constant attitude of looking to God for His sustenance all along the journey. It says, So all the people shouted with a great shout, and they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Nineteen years ago, but the foundation is laid. Look at verse 12. But many of the priests and the Levites and, and heads of the fathers' houses, and some of your Bibles may say this, ancient men. Now others, they, they, they cleaned it up a little bit and called them old men. But uh, ancient is a little closer to the idea. Ancient men... Um, I won't name any names. Who had seen, who had seen the first temple wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes, yet many shouted aloud for joy. Now, so some wept and, and, and some rejoiced when they saw them begin. And some people say that the, those weeping wept because they remembered the glory of Solomon's temple. I, I don't know if I buy that, to be honest. I, sometimes I just like to be obstinate, just to disagree with other people. Some wept. Why they weep? I think they weep because they thought they were never going to see this day. They were never going to see the day when they came back and started again. You ever wept over a person like that? You thought... I remember Kathy thinking, my her sister is never going to get saved. She is never going to get saved. And after a lot of years of prayer, she did. And some people, when she got saved, her kids and some just had shouts of joy. Woohoo! Right on! But Kathy wept. Not because of the wasted years but because she never never thinks she was going to see the day and now she does she was so filled with joy i think sometimes i i feel like it's the same thing for these guys I, you know nothing if you and i tried to build solomon's temple we're a bunch of it would it's never going to look anything like it right i think the first stone i cut i'm pretty sure it's not going to look like solomon's temple but i if i was one of the kids who left and, and and saw the destruction. 
and lived 70 years as a slave and came back, I don't think I'm going to mourn because it doesn't look as good. I think I'm going to mourn because, dang, we're doing it. We're seeing it happen. The, the very promises that God gave, we're starting to see them realized. So they weep and others shout for joy. But look what the Bible says. The people couldn't tell the difference. So many people are shouting and so many people are weeping and it all sounds the same to all the people. They couldn't discern the noise of the shout of joy from the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout and the sound was heard way off. So then, you know, if you start doing some really incredible things for God and you start getting on track and you start moving and you start making changes and you get a fresh beginning, who's next? Yep. The devil's coming. Nobody's allowed to be happy. Nobody's allowed to start going in the right direction without the devil coming to whoop you or try. Or probably not the devil because he's busy, but he'll send somebody. So... The first thing you see, they're building the temple. Things are going on. Look at, look at, look at chapter four. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard, what, what are they hearing? It just said that they were all shouting and praising and glorying and some were weeping and crying for joy and all this stuff's going on. The, the enemies of God heard it. The adversaries. The Bible says, who's our adversary? Satan is the adversary, and what is he? The accuser of the brethren. And how long does he accuse them? Day and night. Does he take a day off? Nope, no days off. The good news is, Jesus Christ doesn't take a day off either. I'm pretty thankful for that. And so, the adversaries heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple. So they came, look at verse 2, they, the adversaries, came to Zerubbabel. And the heads of the father's houses and said to them, Oh, let us join you. Oh, man. Isn't that just like the devil? What's the devil want to do? Look, the devil has learned when he persecutes the church, the church grows. So rather than persecute the church, the devil likes to join. He likes to come in and be a part. Snuggle up and mess it up. So, that's what he says. They come to Zerubbabel, and they say, Let us build with you, for we seek your God like you do. Now, this people is the Samaritans. You guys remember the Samaritans? Uh, the Samaritans are most commonly referred to as the half-breeds, the Jews who were left behind, who intermarried with the Assyrians, and began to try to worship God their own way. How they did that was by mixing all the Canaanite religions together. The Samaritans on Mount Gerizim, still today in Israel, still offer sacrifices at their temple. If you want to know what a Passover would have looked like, you can get a glimpse at the Samaritan temple. Now, the difference is they got their own Bible. They got, they don't, they don't believe the same Bible. They don't have the same books. They don't have the, none of that's the same, but the sacrifice still goes on. Still today, they have those sacrifices. Well, they were, this is the beginning of them. So they have all this false worship that's intermingled, and they want to come and join. Now, Zerubbabel and Joshua say, no. Well, you can't join. Because you're going to bring all that gunk with you. You're going to bring all the, the bogus stuff. So there's got to be a separation. 
There's got to be a separation. He says, And we have sacrificed to him, God, since the days of Ereshadon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel and Yeshua and the rest of the heads of the fathers said, You may do nothing with us to build a house for our God. We alone will build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Now, before you start thinking, oh, there was an opportunity for there to be peace between the two people right there, and they missed it. Then you need to read the next verse. Because the next verse tells you the true colors of those who were trying to make a deal with them. Then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah, and they troubled them in building, and hired counselors. Literally, it would be like this, and hired lawyers. To sue them and frustrate them and challenge their right to build and their opportunity to do so. That's exactly what's going on. Hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. 21 years, they fight them every step of the way to stop them from building. To stop them from doing what God is wanting to do. So, they're not interested in making peace. You get it? They're interested in destroying or distorting what God's trying to do. And so, it says, during the reign of Ahasuerus, so this is now after Cyrus, Cyrus is gone. In the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah. So they write to the king. Uh, In the days of Artaxerxes also, Bishlam, Mithridath, Tabal, um, and the rest of their companions wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And the letter was written in Aramaic script and translated into the Aramaic language. They also wrote to Darius, or Darius. They wrote to him as well. So three different times, they talked to three different kings to try to stop what God's doing and with his people in rebuilding the temple. So they're trying to stop what's going on. So, look at it in verse 9. From Rechem the commander, Shimshai the scribe, and the rest of their companions, representatives of the Dinites and the some other big word, and the Tarpalites, and the people of Persia, and Erech, and Babylon, and Shushan, and the Dechavites, and the Elamites, and the rest of the nations, whom the great and noble Onsnapper... O Snapper took captive and settled in the cities of Samaria and the remainder beyond the river and so forth. And on and on and on. So now, here's what they said. To King Artaxerxes from your servants, the men of the region beyond the river, let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem and are building the rebellious and evil city and are finishing its walls and repairing The foundation. Now we're going to see in Ezra here in the next several chapters, three examples of three different letters that really went at three different times, but it gives us an idea of how the enemy is trying to defame or destroy the work that God's doing, right? They start, they get on track. They start to ignite a fire and a passion for God. Boom. There's the devil trying to put it out. So you have the enemy raising this defamation. Let it be known, if this city is built and the walls completed, they won't pay taxes or tribute or custom, and the king's treasury is going to be diminished. Now, because we received support from the palace, it was not proper for us to see the king dishonored. Therefore, we have sent and informed the king. So you should search and make a, a, a 
that a search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers, and you will find in the book of the records, and know that this city is a rebellious city, harmful to the kings and the provinces, that they have incited sedition within the city in former times, for which cause this city was destroyed. How does Satan start his attack? Pointing to the failures of the past. Although this city, they are all screwed up. First thing that the devil does, they, they, they make all these charges about how many ways they had failed before. The condemnation of the enemy is always going to come in that regard to, to, uh, uh, tell you what a lousy person you are, what a lousy job you've done. God could never use somebody like you. Same thing they're doing here. We inform the king. If this city's rebuilt, and its walls are completed, the result will be you will have no dominion beyond the river. They're going to rebel. So the king answered to Rahum the commander. The introduction in verse 17. Verse 18. The letter which you sent to us has been clearly read before me. And I gave the command and a search was made. And it was found that this city in former times has been rebellious and revolted against kings. And sedition has been fostered in it. And there have also been mighty kings over Jerusalem that have ruled all the region beyond the river and tax and tribute and custom were paid to them. So now, give the command, make these guys stop building. So initially, the devil has a little success. They write a letter to the king, the new king. King Cyrus is the one who let him go. Now the new king says, that ah, stop them, don't let them build it's bad that they're building. Let's, let's put a squash to the work that they're doing. Take heed now that you do not fail to do this. Why should damage increase to the hurt of the king? So the copy of the King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rahum, Shumshai the scribe, and their companions. And they went up in haste to Jerusalem against the Jews. And by force of arms made them cease. They forced them to stop. King says, you can't build no more. That's the end of this little dream. So he stops them. Thus the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, ceased. See, every time we spend time looking back at our failures, the work of God is going to stop. What is it that Paul said in Philippians? He says, this one thing I do, forgetting those things which lie behind, I press on. Forgetting the things, the failures, the struggles, the times I've blown it. God's mercies are new every morning. God wants to restore. God wants to rebuild. God wants us to move forward. If we listen to the condemnation of the enemy, the Bible's very clear. Romans 8, 1. There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus doesn't dial you up to tell you what a lousy person you are. Jesus dials you up to encourage, to exhort, to build, to plant. And so, it stops the work of the Lord. But look what it says in verse 5. The, 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 the attack of the enemy stops the work, but in chapter 5, I'm sorry, we see the Lord sustains the work. And He does it two ways. In chapter 5, He does it prophetically. And in chapter 6, He does it politically. But He starts prophetic. Look what it says in verse 1 in chapter 5. Then the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edu, the prophet prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. God sent two prophets. 
Haggai and Zechariah. They're still here in, 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 in our Bibles today. We can still read the things that they said. Here's one of the things Haggai said. Listen. He said, Now therefore, consider, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but you bring in little. You eat, but you do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put in a bag with holes in it. Does that sound familiar? Well, think on it. What's he talking about? You're living a life with no satisfaction. You stop the work of God. You stop moving forward with God. And nothing makes you, you satisfied. Nothing fills you. Jesus said, Blessed is he who hungers and thirsts after righteousness. For what? He will be filled. What happens if I stop hungering and thirsting after righteousness? I will be empty. Empty. The emptiness. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Consider your ways. Go to the mountain. Bring wood and build the temple. That I might take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts? Because my house is in ruins. While every one of you runs into his own house. Therefore... The heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land, and the mountains, and the grain, and the wine, and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men, and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. And then Zerubbabel and Joshua get the people moving. Once again, they hear the word of the Lord. It says in verse 2 of chapter 5, So Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, and Yeshua the son of Josadak rose up, and began to build the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. I like that. The prophets didn't just say, oh, you guys need to get to work. The prophets were cracking it with them. Cutting stone. Moving, pushing piles. They were doing the stuff. They were doing the work. The prophets are there with them, helping them. And at the same time, Tatanal, the governor of the region beyond the river. Now this is the enemies of God. And their companions came to them and spoke thus to them. Who told you to build the temple and finish this wall? And why are you guys starting to work again? Then accordingly, we told them the names of the men who were constructing the building. But the, listen, but the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews, so they could not make them stop. They couldn't stop them. Before they, they condemned them and they, they pointed to their past failures and that condemnation led to a ceasing of God's work. But now the people start to work and they're starting to obey God and they're starting to do the things that God wants them to do. And then when the enemies come and say, knock it off and they try to make them stop, they can't. They won't stop. So they're going to write another letter. They're going to write a letter to Darius now. This is a copy of the letter that they sent. You see the introduction there in verse 6. In verse 7, the body of the letter. To to Darius the king, all peace. Let it be known to the king. We went into the province of Judah uh, to the temple of the great God, which is being built with heavy stones and timbers being laid in the walls. And this work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. They're they're successful. They're, They're getting it done. And we asked those elders and spoke to them, Who told you to do this? And we asked them their names. Give us your name so we can, you know, tell on you. I love it. And this is what they said. 
We are the servants of the God of heaven. They say, we're not giving you no names. I'm not telling you nothing. We're building, you know, be quiet. We are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and completed. But because our fathers provoked the God of the heaven to wrath, he gave him into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the Chaldeans, who destroyed the temple and carried the people away to Babylon. However, in the first year, Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to build this house. So, they're questioning the people. Why are you building? Who told you you could do this? They won't give them their names, but they say, Cyrus told us we could. Now, the the people who are listening, who are writing all this stuff down and write this letter, they don't believe Cyrus gave them permission. I'm sure they searched the records themselves for any such decree and didn't find any. So they, they're writing to King Darius. Remember King Darius? You want to know who King Darius is? King Darius, right? That's the one who put Daniel in the lion's den. You remember the story? Daniel won't stop praying. They trick Darius to try to throw Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel spends the night in the lion's den and the lions don't eat him. And Darius comes and gets him out of the lion's den. Darius really likes Daniel. So now they're writing to the right man at the right time. God's got his people in place. <clears throat> they're writing to Darius. They say that not only did, did Cyrus tell us to do it, but look at verse 14. The gold and the silver and the articles of the house of God, when Nebuchadnezzar took them from the temple that was in Jerusalem and carried them in the temple of Babylon, those King Cyrus took from the temple of Babylon, and they were given to Shezbazar, uh, whom he had made governor. And he said, take these and carry them to the temple. That is in Jerusalem and let the house of God be rebuilt. So not only he gave them back all the stuff, right? He gave them back the stuff they had. Then the same Shezbasar came and laid the foundation of the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. But from that time, even now, it has been under construction and it is not finished. So they're still working on it. Now, therefore, if it seems good to the king, let a search be made in the king's treasure house, which is there in Babylon, whether it is so that a decree was really made by Cyrus to tell uh, to build the house of God in Jerusalem and let the king send us his pleasure concerning the matter. So they think they're going to squash it again. So they squashed it what, once with condemnation, but the Lord sustained the work by sending two men to share the word of God. And the word of God brought encouragement, and encouragement got the people moving. And when the people got moving again, the devil still had the same attack, right? The devil says, well, we'll write another letter. So he writes another letter. But this time, God's got the right guy in the right place at the right time to receive the letter. So now God's going to sustain it politically. Politically. you got to hear it. I can't just leave you here. So you're going to have to hear this part. Then King Darius issued a decree. And a search was made. And then look at verse 2. And at Achmitha, in the palace in the province of Media, a scroll was found. That's 300 miles away from Babylon. In a little remote library, they found the decree. Which means Darius was looking, right? Otherwise, he wouldn't have gone to that much work. And the Bible tells us where they found it, 300 miles away. In the land of the Medes, the Medo-Persian Empire, it was found. And this is what it said, In the first year, King Cyrus issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem, let the house be rebuilt. So now, 
God sustained it prophetically, right? There are two guys who shared the Word of God, got people going. Then God sustains it politically. We'll look a little more at that, at that uh, chapter 6 next time. Otherwise, I'll never stop. But I just I don't want to leave you there. I want, to, I want you to see that God gave the Word, and the Word got the people going, but then God brought the policies, the, the, the political empowerment to allow the people to continue. Because God wanted His house built. God wanted to see the the children of Israel returning. So in chapter 6, they're going to return. They're going to get the temple built. And they're going to get it all set. But you guys all know just having the, the, the house built doesn't mean that the hearts are right. Right? That's what Ezra comes to do. To get the hearts right. So we'll look at that next time. So So God got the house built. And he got the foundation laid. And he got the people's eyes on the Lord. And he showed them how to overcome the enemy. And that ability to overcome the enemy is still the same, isn't it? How do we overcome the enemy? The blood of the Lamb. The word of our testimony. But you can't love your life. can't love your life. It says they did not love their life to the death. It wasn't all about ease and comfort. It wasn't easy for these guys. 21 years of building. That's a long time. For some people, that's a lifetime. But they didn't love their lives to the death. They wanted to do what God was asking them to do. 50,000 people building. 21 years. That's a big job, right? But when it comes time to get the people's hearts right, only 1,500 come, and really God only needs one to show them the truth of the Word and get people back on the Word and in obedience to what God says. And then God will do great things. Ezra is concerned with the building of the temple and the reviving of the people. And then Nehemiah is going to be concerned with the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And then the people will be back. Then after Nehemiah, actually after chapter 6, just side note, after chapter 6, temples built, you know that you heard of the book of Esther? In the timeline, the book of Esther fits right there. Chapter 6, between chapter 6 and chapter 7, Esther happens. Then Ezra comes. And then the city's rebuilt. And then it's 400 years of silence. And then, Jesus. Boom. God put all the pieces together. And we can see it woven all the way through the Scripture.